So this evening, I'd like to speak about metta, or loving kindness, and the opening of the heart. Uh, how metta transforms us. And before going into the topic, I'd like to say just a word about um, uh, listening to the talk. And that is that uh, most or all of us have an interest really in um, connecting what we're doing here with our daily life practice. And one of the ways that we can explore this is when we're in more of a kind of an interactive um, time. And this interactive in the sense that you're, you're listening and there are things going on. But the uh, practice that we do when we bring this into our daily lives will be tremendously strengthened if we can have the capacity to have some inner awareness at the same time that we're engaging outwardly. That that is actually one of the ways that we bring this into daily life. And so I'd invite you, just while we're here listening to this talk or at other times when there's talking, as you're listening, see if you can keep some inner awareness. It might be just to be some with your body or to uh, just keep some sense of the responses or the, what resonates, just to notice that at the same time that the attention is outward. It's uh, actually challenging to have both inner and outer attention at the same time, but in the long run, this is what really helps bring the practice into daily life. And I intend to do the same. That is, uh, I try to keep some body awareness, Uh, actually uh, my mentor uh, in coming more into teaching in the last uh, 10 years, uh, John Travis, he gave me the guidance. When you give talks, you know, do your preparation, but at the moment of the talk, keep your attention in your belly and your heart and let your thoughts self-organize. It's interesting, interesting practice. So that's, uh, so if you do something like that as well, uh, it, it, again, it can, it can start to develop some of the qualities that are really crucial for making this really alive in daily life, inner and outer attention at the same time, not easy. So in the tradition that we work with here at Spirit Rock, uh, metta is the main way of opening the heart. It's the main practice that we use. It's the main practice in this tradition for um, inclining our being, inclining our hearts towards kindness, towards uh, a sense of care, towards warmth. And it's a very, it's a very uh, powerful practice. In some ways, it's unique in the world. It's been interesting for me to ask people from different traditions about whether there is something like uh, metta, a, a kind of disciplined practice of uh, working to open the heart. And there are some counterparts in other traditions. In the um, Christian tradition, there's the uh, prayer of the heart, Uh, which 
constantly invites one to open the heart, developed in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. But mostly when I've talked with, uh, for example, Catholic contemplatives, many of whom come to the Metta retreats here, (laughs) they say that there's not anything quite so systematic. And again, that doesn't at all mean that they're more loving people in Buddhist tradition than in other traditions. you know, the human mind and heart is pretty much the same and different kinds of barriers in different traditions. Uh, but it's, it's, it is a kind of systematic practice and it's very interesting in that way. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, metta is taught uh, not just typically by itself, but in the context of what are sometimes called the divine abodes, which are uh, sometimes likened to the states of mind of gods and goddesses. And these are the uh, states of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, called the divine abodes or the Brahma Vihara. And they're typically taught together, which is actually really, really crucial. Uh, And in some of the next days, we'll actually explore compassion and joy and equanimity in more depth. But for for now, just to say, as I was saying earlier, I think think yesterday, that metta is understood as the quality of generally opening one's heart, having a sense of kindness towards another, towards another being, towards whatever, towards oneself. It's really uh, Sylvia Borstein, who's been my metta mentor, talks about uh, metta as casting a spell of kindness. So, casting a spell of kindness. It's really, uh, I, I like that. Um, Sylvia is not particularly into formal magic, but that's the language she uses. <laughs> and uh, and there's, there's a sense that with metta, we have this quality of kindness, just this quality of warmth, a general openness of the heart. When that open heart encounters suffering, our own or others, it becomes compassion. So it's not taken that that the heart is a different heart with compassion than with metta. It's, as it were, the same heart with a different environment or a different uh, object. And so um, compassion is the response of the heart to suffering. Joy is the response of the heart to another's joy or more broadly to beauty, to something wonderful, pleasant, amazing. And equanimity is something like the rudder or the balance that really helps the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and joy stay connected to the wisdom dimension. Without that quality of wisdom or equanimity, there are ways that loving kindness or compassion or joy can get lost, can get a little bit out of balance. Loving kindness can, in some ways, forget the quality of equanimity that we wish well to others, but we're not in control of them. And that there are conditions and causes which are connected with people's happiness that go beyond our wishes even though we keep on wanting happiness for others. And similarly, we can get somewhat lost in compassion and perhaps be overwhelmed if we're in 
contact with a lot of suffering. Compassion can actually cease being compassion and turn into something like overwhelm or burnout. And equanimity plays a very large role there. Actually, all the four intermix with each other and are really a complete set. It's actually a very subtle teaching about the necessity, if there's loving kindness, to also have compassion and joy and equanimity present. And so if we were working particularly with compassion, we might look to see where there's uh, a coming out of balance and say, which of those other three need to be developed? And maybe it would be joy. Maybe I'm too much with suffering and I need to uh, increase the amount of joy or connect more with joy in order to come more to the balance. And similarly, joy can just be, can uh, turn into grasping at some point or can turn into getting, uh, I don't know. Well, in the tradition, it's said overly excited. (laughs) So, uh, and again, the equanimity can, which is, again, the wisdom dimension can really help because it can tell us, you may be quite happy now, but there's impermanence to to recall. (laughs) And so it's, again, equanimity isn't kind of like some damper that's just kind of saying, you know, don't be too happy because remember death, impermanence, and suffering. <laughs> it's not quite like that, but it's, it's, uh, it does, uh, it, the four really balance each other beautifully, and that's the context in which loving kindness is taught. And it's a very, I, I'm quite amazed by the subtlety of that teaching coming from 2,500 years ago about the ways that those qualities balance in the, in the heart and mind. So a few more words about, about uh, loving-kindness generally. Uh, the Dalai Lama talks about, as, as many of you know, he, talk, he says, my religion is kindness. Metta is the center of my practice. And he thinks that it's actually the center of all religions and all spiritual approaches. That quality of wishing well, of knowing that everyone, in fact, every being, uh, wants happiness. And we can connect with that and kind of come out of our tendencies towards uh, self-centeredness. There's a powerful story that I heard from my mother about two years ago that for me really expresses the quality of loving kindness quite, quite beautifully. And it's a story that is um, about Shirley Chisholm. Some of you may know Shirley Chisholm. She was a congresswoman uh, who represented uh, Brooklyn, actually. And I met her a number of times because almost in a previous incarnation, I worked in the US Congress. It's true. <laughs> uh, actually, this incarnation. When I was a college student, I, had an, I worked as an intern for a summer in the US Congress. That's another story as to my experience. But I did meet Shirley Chisholm a number of times and met um, um, some wonderful people and some people I didn't appreciate so much. But that's, again, that's another story. Uh, and the, the, the story, Shirley Chisholm uh, died about two years ago. And this is actually my mother heard the story around uh, her, her time of her death. And she was um, 
actually the first woman to run for president. She ran for president in 1972. She was also the first African-American to run for president, I believe. There may have been, I think, I'm pretty sure of that. And um, she was quite someone. She was about four foot 10 inches, but really had tremendous uh, energy and fire and also a tremendous amount of love. And that's what the story is about. Because in the campaign in 1972, uh, one of the other candidates for president was George Wallace. And George Wallace, as probably many or most of you know, uh, I think he died about 10 years ago. He had been the governor of Alabama at a time when uh, there was tremendous resistance to desegregation. And he was actually fighting the federal government and making things hard for people in the civil rights movement in the uh, early 60s. And in 1972, he was the candidate for president on a fairly lightly camouflaged, uh, basically racist approach. You know, it was, so to speak, uh, I guess it was the kind of the precursor of the, um, some of the um, Democrats who would later be for Reagan, who were kind of, uh, it was more working class, and there was really, it was really feeding into a general resentment and anxiety that was, that was experienced by a lot of, and particularly in the South, by a lot of the particularly white working class. During that campaign, there was an attempt on the life of George Wallace, and he was shot. And he was injured pretty badly. In fact, uh, he was paralyzed. And he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And shortly after he was shot, uh, Shirley Chisholm went to visit him in the hospital. And um, she went to the hospital. And Wallace's first words were, your people aren't going to like the fact that, that you're here. That was Wallace's uh, comment. And Shirley Chisholm's response was, I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. That's the spirit of metta. I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone. And it's hard to know exactly, but it's likely that that had a, a profound impact on Wallace. Because um, not very long after that, you know, the, after the election was over and neither of them won, <laughs> <laughs> but short, shortly after that, I think just a year or two after that, Shirley Chisholm was um, the sponsor of a bill to raise the minimum wage. And it was having some problems, and it was having some problems particularly with um, southern senators, southern congressmen. And Wallace actually helped her. It was just a year or two afterwards. He helped her by uh, calling up a number of congressmen, and the bill passed. And as some of you know, probably uh, some of you know, um, Wallace later repudiated his racism publicly and became actually an advocate for uh, reconciliation in the South. You know, it's hard to know the causality 
but I like to imagine that that, um, that one moment of metta you know, had a very, very profound effect. It's not hard to imagine that. And it wasn't something she planned. You know, some people don't need to practice metta like we're doing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are people like that in the world. And I imagine that Shirley Chisholm was one of those. It was just her first response right there. It was the, the, the quality of kindness. And so that's, um, that's always stayed for me as something that uh, um, I remember. I really remember that story. And you can, you know, I've told it a few times, and you can tell it still affects me just in the telling of it. I can really, I can really feel that. And yet, um, you know, and yet metta is not so easy. You know, as we, as we have found in our, um, our practice of it, sometimes it feels like it's not, not there very much. You know, or as, as some of us found during the loving kindness towards the neutral person, it's not so easy uh, to, to work with. And I, I was recalling my first uh, time that I did a lot of metta. I'd done metta, you know, we actually, um, you know, in the communities around Spirit Rock and, and, and um, before Spirit Rock was formed, Insight Meditation Society in, on the East Coast, uh, metta wasn't taught so much. It was mostly mindfulness all day long, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and people sometimes wondered, where's the, where's the kindness, where's, and so forth. But we, so I didn't have so much exposure to metta in, in the early days of practice. We'd do it 10 minutes here and there. And when I first did it for a longer time, I actually did it on my own at a, at a retreat. I didn't really have much guidance. Guidance would have helped. I did it on my own for about a week, and it felt kind of dry. It felt like not that much was happening. I was... Uh, doing the phrases, and it kind of felt good, but it, I didn't feel any, I expected and thought there should be gushing love, you know, at least 15 hours a day. <laughs> and it um, didn't happen. In fact, I didn't even feel um, a dribble of love. <laughs> I didn't feel that much. And I was, I was a little bit frustrated and, you know, a little judgmental. But I was still doing it. And then one morning, actually when I wasn't doing metta, just like after breakfast or something, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. <laughs> and I was very touched. <laughs> and I said, hmm, this metta works in mysterious ways. You know, and, and actually Sharon Salzberg, who's one of the main teachers of metta, tells a kind of similar story that the first time she did metta, I think this is in the book uh, on loving kindness, which some of you know, which is like probably the, the starting book on metta. And I'll, I'll give a, a reading list out at the, at the end of the retreat. Um, but uh, she tells a story that's quite similar in which she uh, had done like her first metta retreat and didn't feel like that much was happening. Remember, this is for someone who now is the queen of metta. <laughs> so, not so, so I hope that is helpful for putting everything in perspective. right? That, and she wasn't feeling so much. And she actually had to end her retreat a, a few days early. She was living at the Insight Meditation Society. And there was some kind of uh, conflict in the community. And she had to leave her retreat and help work with the conflict. And she was kind of in a hurry. And she... Um, 
She knocked on her way. She knocked over a vase with water and flowers. And she started judging herself. You clots. And then right after that, she said, you clots. And then she said to herself, you may be a klutz, but I really love you. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> and it, it, uh, again, it maybe points to the mysterious nature of, because metta, we remember, metta is an intention practice. We are inclining the mind towards metta. We are not demanding that metta be there. We are not, we're not thinking, I am producing loving kindness. I am producing love. Love happen. You know, it's not like that. And so it's really, it's really good to remember that, that we're inclining our mind, and sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not in the long run. It's like, I like to think of it, it's like a knocking on the door of the heart. You know, and it may be, and it, the particular phrases we use, we try to find the phrases which really uh, resonate and which open the heart some. So I was reflecting on uh, several ways that metta works. And I want to, for the rest of the talk, uh, go into, I think, uh, four main ways that that metta works. Uh, One is that we really learn to, in a way, uh, lead with our hearts. A second way is that it it helps us to develop uh, concentration in the sense really of actually bringing the different parts of ourselves together. Concentration, not just in the sense of focusing, but in the sense of integration, collecting, bringing together. And thirdly, uh, when we do metta, there's a kind of purification practice that happens, actually also in the the mindfulness practice. And fourth, that there's a way that we, in doing the metta, we really learn better to connect with others. We prepare the heart in a way for connecting. And as we bring the metta into daily life, we actually uh, can, it's part of learning to connect better with others. So those, those four, uh, that we lead with the hearts, concentration, purification, and then a, a better sense of connecting. So I was, I was think, thinking of, I think of metta a lot as in doing the, you know, in doing the intentions to that, that really constitute metta, we're like this continual remembering of the importance of kindness. It's like we keep on remembering, let me be kind, let me offer this, let me do this. And again, sometimes we don't feel it, but we, in a way, as we get better at the metta, we learn, uh, I like to say, lead with our hearts. And it, can, it can actually manifest in daily life, and it can manifest here. It's really bringing the quality of the open heart into more prominence, and naming it and inviting it to, to be present. Again, it's something that I think we, we find in a number of people who are, can be quite exemplary, because there are a lot of people who lead with their hearts and who are, take that almost as their core spiritual practice. I mentioned... Uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, who, who asked this question, is my action coming out of love? That's the spirit of metta. We would not do, uh, let, me, let me rephrase that sentence, we would do quite well if we did nothing else simply to remember that question. Is my action coming out of love? In a way, it's, 
It's saying, is metta present? What's the state of my heart? Sylvia Borstein likes to say that the remembering of metta is like uh, checking out where is my heart at right now? And if it's not so much with metta, we can invite the metta to be more there. A few years ago, when I, was, I did, as I mentioned, uh, quite a few weeks of metta, uh, being on retreat, and it's, it's a powerful practice. And what I found was that I was, you know, I was doing metta all the time, and after a while, this is partly connected with the concentration, it settles into a kind of groove. And actually, a lot of uh, scientists are actually studying how you know, they're particularly studying people who've, who've done a lot of uh, loving kindness or compassion practice to see uh, how their, their brains work. And they actually, you know, when they've studied particularly Tibetan monks and nuns, they say that it actually, some of you probably know this research, it actually, that there's kind of a compassion or loving kindness part of the brain, and it lights up when people do uh, metta. And I could feel this doing a lot, and maybe you have felt it, that there's something, it's almost you know, it can feel like it gets, it gets into a groove. The nervous system gets into a loving-kindness groove. And when I was doing my practice, I would, I would be feeling that I was continually leading. And when I, when I noticed that I wasn't doing that, it was very apparent. You know, and I would, uh, I would sometimes I would notice uh, that I'd be... Um, someone would come by... Or, you know, a lot of things happen, as you know, in the dining hall. <laughs> you know, that we, you know, for me and for many of us, it might be just, just saying, that person's sure taking a lot of food, must have had a hard day, or something, <laughs> something like that, you know. And when I would catch myself doing that, being, not, you know, either a little bit judgmental or just even in a minor way, it felt off because it, was, it, was it wasn't leading with my heart. And I would, I would feel I got to come back and do metta towards that person for at least a little while to kind of correct the imbalance. It was, it was one of the joys of doing the metta practice, you know, uh, just that continual um, seeing whether I'm really leading with my heart. Where I was thinking about, uh, I was also thinking about uh, Gandhi. Gandhi did a kind of devotional prayer moment to moment in which he said the name. Uh, the Hindu name for God, Ram. And he would just continually repeat that. And some of you know, especially if you've seen the film, uh, Gandhi, that when he was shot, his first words were Ram. Because that was on, he would, that was on his mind. That was what he was continually repeating. It was like he was in a way, and I think it was a quality of leading with his heart like that. Where I was also thinking... There's a beautiful passage, uh, I think it's from a speech from uh, Martin Luther King. Um, It's a speech which begins, where one of the passages says, I have decided to love. And it goes on, I don't have the passage with me, but I remember it, that he, he talks about the, I have decided to love, and he talks about how love is the quality that, in his words, uh, opens us up to ultimate reality and is found in every tradition. And his statement, I have decided to love, is this quality of leading with the heart, of really saying, I want to lead with that. When I do metta, it's like I make a commitment to leading in that way. 
And there are different ways to do it. You know, I've mentioned that some of my uh, students, at least two or three of my students, their primary place of practicing metta is when they're driving. Um, driving is an interesting area of practice, you know, but it's, it's something that we can do, that we can, can, we can lead with our hearts on the freeway. You know, keep grounded and don't get too absorbed or close your eyes too much, but, <laughs> but, but we, can, we can do it actually. And one of the interesting experiences that I had on this uh, metta retreat came at the end of the retreat when I was here for five weeks and the last four, three or four days of the retreat, I actually had a few responsibilities outside of the retreat. And so I had been meditating for, you know, four and a half weeks and I, um, I needed to uh, check my email. And so I uh, downloaded uh, 400 emails four and a half weeks into silence and meditation and no emails. And I started looking at them. It was a really interesting experience because for one thing, there was no way I could not do metta with emails. I had been doing it nonstop for four and a half weeks. And so the metta was there during my emails and I had to do them more slowly. But what I found was that I would do basically a, a round of four phrases with every email. And then I would try to express, this is just what came in that experience. I didn't plan it. And I would just try to um, have in the body of the email some words which expressed loving kindness. It would be something like, I hope you're doing well, or something like that, kind of. And and, um, it was really interesting to do that. And I have actually, it had quite an impact on me because maybe like you, I had often wondered, how do we bring our practice into being at the computer? The Buddha didn't talk a lot about it. <laughs> and it always, I mean, I had always wondered about it, you know, because sometimes it feels like being on the computer is to enter into a disembodied state. And it, it doesn't often just feel like that. It is like that in many ways. And so doing this really was part of an answer to me. So it slows down a little bit my emails, but I've actually kept that practice up for, uh, I guess, about two and a half years. And those of you, I don't know if anyone here has got emails from me, but uh, maybe a a few of you. And um, I still do that, and I still do the practice, and it really uh, makes a shift. And when I've mentioned it to people, a lot of people resonate with it. And so I I, I think there are a lot of people out there, at least around Spirit Rock, who are if you ever get emails from people and they say something like, may you be well, <laughs> and you, know, you get irritated at it, I feel sappy, you know, you can blame me. <laughs> Whatever. So I try to, you know, with people I email a lot, I try to vary it so it's not just, so it's, so it's not rote and so forth. But it actually is, um, it actually has been really, really interesting because it's that quality of leading, really that quality of leading with the heart. How can we do that? How can I lead with the heart? How can I be there with the heart? Um, that's the first way in which metta really influences us because it just brings it. And you know, it's maybe, maybe like you at times at least, when I'm most in contact, I say, I don't really want that quality of metta to be absent. I want that to be here. Just like when I was mentioning of just those moments of judging, it felt really 
like a kind of uh, loss of something really, and a kind of moving into a kind of a barrenness almost. So the second quality that happens with, uh, with metta is uh, concentration. It's a kind of integration that happens. And um, we typically translate the word samadhi with the word concentration. And I think it's a little bit misleading. And concentration is an important aspect of our practice. But sometimes I think we tend to interpret that as meaning focusing, you know, and kind of using the mind like a laser to kind of be with the object, whether it's the breath or with metta. And I believe that the sense of samadhi that's really there in the text is much more a sense of um, connecting, bringing together, kind of having one sense be oneself be really whole and connected, integrated in a way, having all the parts of ourselves there. You know, and it's there in the etymology because the SAM in uh, samadhi is similar to uh, uh, Western languages because uh, Pali and Sanskrit are Indo-European languages, so they have some of the same roots uh, in those Asian languages. They have some of the same roots as uh, Western languages. And so the word sam is very similar to the word for um, sum, or which, which can mean a summary, a bringing together, an integration, like sum, summary, summa theologica, from Aquinas, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. That, that, bringing, that bringing together. And so I really like to think, and it's really a way to maybe develop our concentration, so it's not so much almost coming from our head, but it actually comes from our whole body. And it's actually, as in my experience, I started out kind of using my mind like a laser, and it actually is a little distorted. And it's been a mark of, um, I think it's a mark of a deepening of concentration when it's really a, a um, kind of a bringing together of all of our being, an integration. And, and metta has that quality. It really uh, concentrates our mind, but it also concentrates our being. Uh, there's a beautiful phrase from Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing that quality of really feeling connected. And in the metta, we're just really concentrating the mind or collecting the mind around kindness. Very simple, you know, very basic. And it can really uh, feel unified. Unification could be another uh, translation of samadhi. Unification of the mind. Actually, maybe that's even better than... than um, um, integration or even connection. And so there, there are ways that when we do metta, we, uh, we develop in concentration. We bring together the constant repetition, the constant intention. As I mentioned, it has an effect on our nervous system. You know, and you may be feeling in some of the meditation that it actually has an impact on our, on our very being. And I think it does in, in a way that I think is quite helpful, that it it, uh, it shifts us, it, it, and, and particularly it can shift us out of old habits because the old habits also 
in a way, structure our nervous system. And when we do metta, in a way, we're interrupting that. We're interrupting a lot of those old habits towards really, um, um, as it were, unifying our being and, and around the heart. And so it's the repetition of the phrases, concentrate us, the constant coming back, the, really the, the, the focusing of the heart. And there's a way in which uh, that kind of concentration, as it develops, even strengthens the metta. So it becomes, there can be this very strong feeling in the heart that becomes almost like uh, uh, a very focused expression of love that can be there. But it's that, and that's why the, um, in the retreat, the uh, simplicity of how we are in the retreat can support the concentration. That's why that quality of walking back and forth on a path, not really, uh, I mean, there, there are wonderful things about taking long hikes, but it will tend to uh, uh, not support concentration so much. And, and, and again, there are different things we need at different times, but it's good to know that. You know, there's a uh, 19th century Eastern Orthodox uh, writer, I think a Russian Orthodox teacher named Theophane, who said this, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Interesting. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. That warmth is about, it has these qualities of concentration. And so as we develop further in the concentration, there can be an ease, there can be a way after we do the metta that the phrases actually keep on going. They keep on going in our mind, almost like, I think this is what it must have been like for Gandhi, repeating Ram, that the, that the phrases keep on going. And I, it was fascinating to do this for a longer time and just have the phrases take on an energy of their own where they were just keeping on going and it wasn't so much effort. It was like the, the mind got concentrated in the text. There are phrases that when there's, good, when there's concentration, when it gets stronger, the mind becomes pliant and malleable, that one can, in a way, shift the mind. And there can be, even the phrases can be there, and they don't, in a way, engage the thinking part of our mind. So there can there be this deep stillness with the phrases going on at the same time, and the heart feeling the metta. And it's quite, quite amazing. The caveat to all of this is that Concentration is a tool and an aid, but it doesn't in itself bring freedom. That one can be deeply concentrated, and when you stop being concentrated, you can be a schmuck, (laughs) to use the colloquial. (laughs) I'm exaggerating a little bit in saying that. But there, there's a way, and it's important to know that the, uh, the learning that happens especially happens with insight. Concentration can develop our, ourselves so we can actually see more. And when we do the mindfulness practice, we work with to get a starting level of concentration. But it's good to know that because some of us some, sometimes long to be deeply concentrated. And it's actually helpful to know that more learning occurs when we're somewhat concentrated but can actually see clearly and notice patterns. That's an important point generally in our practice and also for metta, 
because we can get, I think one of the dangers of doing retreats is that we can get a little bit hung up about concentration. And we can sometimes devalue everyday life where it's harder to maintain the levels of concentration. But it's really important to know that the wisdom dimension and the seeing doesn't demand the great depths of concentration. It demands some ability to see what's happening, but it actually uh, can happen quite readily in daily life. And that, that point is really related to the third point that I want to make, which is that as we do metta, we, in a way, we purify ourselves. And it's kind of implicit in some of what I was saying before, but it's good to highlight it, that there is this quality of, and if some of you don't like the word purification, then we can maybe find another word, because that, that I know in, for some people that has connotations. And I think that maybe take that to be generally true of anything that I say or that you say or even that you read, that words have a lot of connotations and we each have our personal histories and we may find certain words awkward. And typically we can find other words that work better. I just wanted to say that because that's an important point. So if you hear a word and the connotation just feels jarring, then you can know that almost always you can find a different word that has pretty much the same meaning that will be less jarring. And for some people it might be purification uh, because it suggests that somehow we can be pure and I feel impure and is my goal to be pure? What's the story? <laughs> okay. and, but nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, there's, there's a way in which uh, there can be a process by which we actually uh, work with, let's say, parts of ourselves that bring suffering or that stand in the way of the open heart. That's really what I'm meaning by purification, that we, that we open up and find parts of ourselves that make loving kindness or kindness or warmth difficult. And similarly, we do that with very much with uh, the mindfulness practice, that there's a purification aspect to the mindfulness practice, that we, we're asked to be mindful, and in large part we study the 10, the 20 ways that it's difficult to be mindful. And there's a purification because we see that, oh, I'm tending to want to control experience. Let me let go of that son. Oh, I'm tending to form, have all this thinking that just goes into interpretations right away. Oh, I see that. Let me let go of that son. And it's similar with the loving kindness, that we can really notice different ways that make it hard to open up. We can see those. In the process of doing metta, we can have those come right up there. We can notice that if we feel judgmental, you know, in the story that I gave about my first metta experience, you know, where I was actually becoming a little judgmental because I wasn't feeling the kind of metta I thought should be there because aren't I a loving person, Donald? Aren't I kind? Etc. <laughs> that, that there's, and, and I, w- I was judgmental and I, I could notice that. And we can, so some of what happens in metta is that we notice the ways that metta is hard. And we, again, we, if we approach it in, in the, the spirit of noticing and naming, and even in a, in a spirit of kindness, even, you know, really no matter what's there, that really is, <clears throat> is very helpful. <clears throat> in the practice of metta, there's, there's a way in which what we're doing is we're, in a sense, inclining towards the positive. We're inclining towards the beautiful. 
where, where something happens and we can really say, let me, let me notice what's beautiful here. Let me bring myself towards kindness. In the realm of interpersonal interactions, it can be uh, a training that helps us notice the good in people. Not that this is the totality of being with people, but my experience with metta is that it purifies some of the self-judgmental qualities, but it also purifies some of the tendencies to focus on the negative in people, to focus on the problems, to focus on the criticisms. And I know for myself that really has been a lot of my conditioning. You know, and it's uh, you know, kind of partly being a problem solver. You know, and really to, and many of us may have that conditioning. And so I will tend to focus on what is lacking in a situation. And of course that has its use and can have its, its uh, insight. But for me, doing metta has helped me really to focus on the positive in a person. Again, and the big picture is that I bal- can balance the, uh, you know, the, it's like the problem solving, that's developed. <laughs> the seeing of the critical points. Not too much more work to be done there. <laughs> and, but the balancing of that with seeing the positive, yes, there is work to be done there. And then so that, that's another way that, the, that uh, metta purifies. Eventually, it takes us to our depths where there can be a touching of some of those deeper qualities that are... Um, there as a, as a kind of expression of kindness. The Buddha actually talked about the deeper nature of the mind and heart as having the quality of metta. He talked about metta being this uh, linked with what he called the brightly shining heart and mind which lies covered over for most of us. And metta practice opens us up to that brightly shining part of ourselves which I know we all have touched at different times. And it lets it be there more easily, more fully. This is, this is what the Buddha said. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This people who do not practice do not really understand. And so they don't cultivate. They don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This those who practice come to understand. For them, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. And he links that, again, that luminous quality of our being to metta. And it's quite, it's taken to be something which is, as it were, colored, uh, covered over in his language, colored by the attachments. And part of what we do in this purification practice is that we notice those attachments, we see them, we release them to some extent, and we move towards that quality of metta, towards that brightly shining quality. The last, um, the last area that I want to talk about is the, is the quality of how metta really helps us uh, to connect. It really helps us to be with others in the spirit of uh, loving kindness and how that really, in a way, um, 
overcomes some of the barriers that we have to connecting with others. And in a way, it really opens us up to, to the quality of love, which we, I know we often feel in certain times. You know? And often I think it actually takes sometimes uh, crises of different kinds. And crises are interesting because they, they either bring out a sense of deep fear and reactivity, or they can bring out uh, a great amount of love. It's kind of interesting. You know, suffering is the same way. Suffering can open some, open some of us up to greater love, and for some of us, it shuts us down. It's kind of, you know, and conflicts do that, and sometimes, you know, uh, uh, sometimes extreme situations do that. But for many of us, I imagine that there have been certain kinds of crisis situations which just bring out, can bring out an immense love. It might be when there's a death or someone dying, you know, I remember about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, my father was dying, you know, and I was, and it was actually, um, you know, of course it was, it was um, deeply sad in many ways, but it was also, it was actually a, a beautiful death. He, you know, he lived, and my mother still lives, about 40 minutes from here in Petaluma. And um, I actually had to cancel a retreat I was teaching. To, to go be with him, but I was able to be with him the last six days of his life and um, was actually doing a lot of metta and doing a lot of a similar practice that some of you know called Tonglen, which is a Tibetan practice of really breathing in the uh, negative and breathing out uh, re- relief and, and kind of very beautiful energy. And... Uh, I would tell my father that I was doing that and he would have this big smile on his face because it was actually really beautiful conditions. He actually died um, at home without pain and surrounded by family and friends. And I had the privilege really of sitting with him uh, probably 18 hours a day. It was like a retreat in a way for those last six days. And, and uh, one of my friends who also is... Uh, connect with Spirit Rock, would come and, and sit with me some, you know, and actually um, I was there most of the time just by myself because the rest of my family um, didn't want to be in, in there too much. It was, it was, it was hard for them. There were there some, but most of the time I was actually alone and just sitting there and it just felt like the whole atmosphere, um, Actually, of course, there was a lot of sadness, but there came to be just a tremendous amount of love there. And I imagine that many of us know at certain of these really uh, difficult moments, sometimes love just comes there, you know, or just this caring, you know, like in when there's um, a natural disaster. Sometimes people just, just ru- comes to the fore as just this beautiful quality of um, human nature and uh, the wish to help you know, the wish to be there for others. And I've seen that, and you've probably seen that as well, or when there's some loss that someone experiences. And sometimes I say, why couldn't we have disasters more often? <laughs> I don't really say that, but I was, uh, but it's, it brings out that quality. And uh, so it, it, I think it's helpful because it tells us something about human potential, that quality of love which is there. And when we do metta, it helps us to have that be more present. It kind of, gives us a way to train in inviting the heart continually to be there and helps us to connect across 
the boundaries. Um, there was another experience that I remember that for me connects with metta, which was about uh, 15 years ago. I had uh, some jaw surgery and um, I was actually um, born with my mother's uh, upper jaw and my father's lower jaw. <laughs> it might, might be vice versa, I don't know, but, but basically, um, you know, my major link with mortality has been through dentistry <laughs> and, and teeth and so forth. And, and so about 15 years ago, I had a jaw surgery where, you know, it was preceded by braces. You know, as an adult, having braces is not great. But it, was, it actually was better than I also had braces when I was a teenager, which was the pits. <laughs> Probably many of you have had that experience and you know that. But I had it for five years as a teenager from age 13 to 18. That was, that was rough. And no doubt set me on my path uh, towards meditation. <laughs> Um, and so, so I had this surgery where they actually, uh, I forget the technical name of it, but they basically break my jaws. They break the jawbone and they put the teeth together. They put the jaws together in a new way. You know, and I basically had to drink liquids for six weeks after that and so forth. And, but um, something that happened was that it was very... Um, um, uh, doctors don't tell us, but actually when you have general anesthesia, um, the body comes pretty close to death. And that's not communicated that much. And um, I have a friend and a colleague named Jean Achterberg. Some of you may know her work. She does, has done a lot with imagery and healing, particularly working with people with cancer. And Jean, Jean is the one who tells me that because she works you know, in, in the field of... Uh, sort of health and psychology and so forth. Anyway, um, my experience after the surgery was that I was basically in an altered state for 10 days. It was something like a near-death experience. And when I came out of it, uh, I basically alternated, and maybe this was similar to the experience being near death, I kind of alternated between fear and love. There was something that about like the fragility of human life was just so obvious. It was like from the impact from the surgery. So there was often this, this fear that was just there a lot. But then the fear would fade and would open up into love. That was just there. And it was very connected. That's how I was thinking in, in terms of the sense of connecting. I, fe- I felt like every living being was fragile and deserved love. And it was really like in my bones. It was really strong. It lasted for 10 days and then, then it faded some. Or faded, it faded pretty much that altered state faded. But it was really interesting because it was uh, at the height, particularly the few days afterwards, it, didn't, it wasn't just extended towards people. I was feeling a kind of uh, warmth and compassion even towards the uh, uh, mugs and bowls and plates because they too were fragile and would break. And it was like that. It was like that sensitivity uh, and sense of connecting. So I would really connect and I felt a kind of empathy. And again, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about anything. It was just kind of there. And I think sometimes we, we tune into that. I don't know if me speaking about it is, is evoking some of your memories. That might, might be the case, because it really, I think we forget these experiences a lot, but they're actually, they're actually there. And so there's this way that we can really, the metta can really connect us. You know, as we, as we open up with the metta and with the meditation, 
I think we have more of a sense that all of us really want happiness. And as we deepen in our own sense of metta and our own meditation, it's harder not to, well, let me, let me rephrase it. There, there's a tendency that grows to actually be with every living being and have a greater sense of empathy, almost to be, as it were, more able to experience, almost from the person's consciousness itself. Metta helps move towards that, that quality of empathy. The empathy can grow. And it's something which I think is a natural uh, development from meditation and from, from metta. You know, from the mindfulness practice, it's like we, when we explore deeply, it's like we've explored the heart and the mind and the body. And it's, there's a personal aspect, but there's also this universal aspect, and we can tune more into that. And it helps us really to connect with others. And there's this last way that I'll mention that I think is also really crucial. There's this very powerful phrase in the teachings of the Buddha that uh, was pointed out to me about five or six years ago by Guy Armstrong, who also teaches here. And he, I, think, I, I don't think it was in a talk, I think we were just talking, and he said, here's this passage in, in um, one of the texts of the Buddha, and it's about metta, and it says this, I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will never harm another. And it was that last line that just was like electric. One who loves oneself will never harm another. And so very, for me, very, very profound uh, statement that I could actually um, talk for the next hour about it because it's very, it's, it, it goes in so many directions. It's about how when there's a deep self-love, we, in a way, connect with others. And it's very hard to, to, to hurt another if, we, if there's really that self-caring. And the other side of it is that a lot of the sources of hurting others comes because we don't love ourselves that there can be some kind of self-hatred that is at the root of violence. Not hard to see when we look at the world. And so what that means, and it's quite profound, is that one of the ways to address violence, and again, not, not an original thought, a lot of people have thought this, is actually to develop uh, self-love. And to have that then expand into the love of others. You know, Which I think was at the heart of the work of people like Martin Luther King, and I think also actually Malcolm X, if you read his work. It's really very much about how self-love is at the source of um, ending oppression. And so this last statement is also about the way that when metta gets really deep, it connects with others. It really, we really feel connected, and it's very hard, it's much harder to hurt others because something, I think, gets violated in our own being when we do that. And that just becomes more intuitive and natural. So let me, I want to end with um, a, um, I think I'll end actually by reading the Metta Sutta, just, just quite briefly. This is the, the Buddha's uh, words. Actually, I'll read a passage. Um, 
No, I'll read the whole thing. Okay. But I'll read the Metta Sutta and I'll make a copy of this and give this out to you in the next few days. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime or the blessed abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all compulsive desires, is not born again into this world. So let's just sit for a minute or two. letting whatever has been helpful and energizing be present. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.